Hello, everyone, and uh, welcome to Two Crickets in a Thorn Tree, uh, a relaxed Sunday edition. We're coming to you uh, live, or not live, but li- live recording. <laughs> we are live. Um, we are alive. We are live, yes. We are Which is good alive. news, as far as we're concerned. I'm, Nic- I'm Nicholas Lorimer, uh, half of the podcast, and the other half of the podcast is here with me, and he is, of Gabriel, course... Gabriel Krauser. Uh, greetings to everyone. I, I imagine that by the time you hear this, Everyone would be pretty enthused about uh, being allowed to go out and buy legal booze and tobacco Which, again. Our glorious uh, overlord, comrade Dramaposa, um, allowed us to go and delight in the vices that we were that we're so addicted to last night. Uh, so I'm, I'm, I'm not say I'm not going to say that I was uh, desperate for this to happen, um, but I am going to definitely enjoy beer now. It's a good time. Yeah. I was pretty stoked because I had one bottle of wine and a third of a bottle of brandy left in my stock. So timing was great. From a cigarette point of view, I had just switched over from buying the awful illegal RGs to buying organic loose leaf tobacco (laughs) with virgin paper cork filters and 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 unbleached hemp papers from the papers are like from Sweden and the rolling uh, and the filters are from Spain and the tobacco is it's called Monitau it's like American and German and it says it's organic about 15 times on the cover how 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 does I didn't realize the cigarette smokers had such good taste how well yeah I mean in possession of such a thing I've got a I've got a very fancy friend uh and uh he's been getting the good stuff and i finally got the good stuff too and immediately as soon as i started smoking that uh and dropped the other stuff (laughs) i felt much better uh because all of the like gross bleaches and additives and and stuff that they put in the really fong kong cigarettes uh was getting to me so i was relieved at that but i'm relieved at this because it means less uh you know my i'm spending i bought 12 beers last week for 900 rand and Oof. this yeah, week no, for, no, this week for 900 rand i can buy 48 beers you know you see this is this is how you know that we're a country of alcoholics is that they can sell at that price and still have customers lining up well i mean it's restaurant prices if you're spending 45 rand a beer it's like buying a beer at a at a pretty schnazzy place yeah but you know why? <laughs> just, I just got to make pretend brew, that my home is very better, snazzy. Yeah, but, but better to try and brew pineapple beer or something yourself at home, uh, which is something I'm pretty sure some relatives of mine did. Um, I didn't get to taste it, unfortunately, but it looked pretty good. Yeah, it made us all very clever. But now it's over. And there's <laughs> just one point that I want to raise about that. I've said this a couple of times on Daily Friend podcasts. I wrote about this on the Daily Friend Um in advance uh the the president did the right thing in lifting the lockdown uh saint cyril frog boiler ramaposa his his highness <laughs> uh his did exactly the right his imperial majesty did the right thing in lifting the bans um but his justification was false he said that admissions have been down for the last three weeks i have got the graph it's going to be coming out on the daily friend if you exclude the western cape admissions have been going up uh, mm. If you look at people on ventilators going up, 
if you look at people in ICUs going up. Uh, if you look at the case numbers, they've been going down. Why is that? Because testing has gone down. We were doing but community has, screening tests. Testing has fallen massively. I mean, uh, what? Uh, even just a few weeks ago, there were days where we were doing sort of 40,000 tests in a day, and then suddenly we dropped down to, what, 10,000? Yeah. And so there's, and, and so this is something that, that uh, a lot of people are going to struggle to think about for a long time because it's a cause it's a causal issue right are, are decreased tests causing decreased recorded cases or is it the case that there're less cases and so less people are presenting for testing now why the reason this causal thing is so hard to tease apart is cuz both are true there's a feedback loop uh, so you have to try and uh, uh, pass apart the, the the variables that are making the overwhelming difference or the telling difference. One of the variables that matters is that 10,000 tests per day that we were doing were community screening tests. So that's they go out, they screen you, they take your temperature. If your temperature is low, they leave you alone. But if you're running a fever, they go into the townships, government official guys. And if they yeah. find that you're running a fever or at roadblocks, then they say you've got to get a coronavirus test. We were doing 10, 11,000 tests like that a day. We dropped it to 2,000 tests a day. So that's a quarter of the tests pulled out of the picture by government, right? That's There's nothing voluntary about that. That's just an order. And whether it's a deliberate order or they ran out of tests or they ran out of money or the person that they spent the money, gave the money to I mean, finally bought their yacht. <coughs> a, cynic, into a cynic might say that this was an order so that they could make give themselves a justification for lowering the lockdown. Because if you follow the government's own internal logic, which is not something we support, uh, if there's a lot of cases, then you need to ensure that the lockdown is is in actually increased rather than decreased. Correct. So it does look very much like uh, when President Trump said, here's what you need to do, test less, because less tests mean <laughs> less cases. They were like, ah, the wise orange See, man. Yeah. He, he said he said that this was uh, recommended to him by the manuals and books. He got it from the books. They got it from him. And the manuals. Who knows? <laughs> and, the, and the manuals. <laughs> okay. So that's part of it. Another part of it is that uh, the temperature improved. And as soon as the temperature improves, people's mood improve. This is, this is like mm -hmm. – there are a lot of studies to show this. That when spring rolls around, if you've been having a little <clears throat> bit of vitamin D deficiency, just getting a vitamin D spike from having more sunshine, more warmth, more outside time, uh, more physical time, uh, it improves one's mood. That is very likely to make some people less prone to be tested, to actively pursue being tested. Yeah. Um, uh, because a lot of people who get tested, they're not very sick. They're just a little bit, you know, snivelly, and they're not sure whether they want to get tested or not. Mm. Um, another part of it is if you're seeing in the news that less people are getting tested, then you feel less panicked. Then you get a snivel. You're like, ah, it's probably yeah. not the so You're going to take it less seriously. We're behind it. It's over. I'm tired of this. Let's just go on with our lives. So Which that's is a very understandable fact. sentiment. I think all of us are yeah. feeling that. Yeah. And then, and, then, and then a final thing to consider is that if you pull out the Western Cape, even on the testing numbers, the positivity ratio, the rate at which tests uh, were coming out positive has gone up. In Gauteng, mm. it climbed in July from 20, 24, 22, 23%, 24% at the start of the month to 31, 32, 33% at the end of the month. Uh, and we don't really, we have to, gonna have to wait until tomorrow to get better data from Gauteng. But that increase in the positivity ratio is very yeah, worrying. I, I, I Especially think, I when you combine it. 
I think so I checked the stats yesterday, yeah, and, okay. and it was like 17% or something. So it looks like it may be coming down. But no, no, we'll no. no. But here's the thing. If you look at the, those stats came from the NCID, the National Center for Infectious yes. Diseases. If you look on the NCID from early June, every single week, their end of week uh, report, which is the only place you can find positivity numbers because they don't mm -hmm. have it on the daily reports. Every single week, they've said uh, the virus peaked this week. If you look at the graphs. <laughs> okay, that's and then and then if you look at the little <laughs> asterisks, they're like that's because we haven't collated all of the data yet. So they they publish it, even mm. though they have all of the data, they just don't process it in time. Uh, they still publish it. So every single week, I've gone through every single one of their reports since they started. Every single week in June, July, August. Uh, it looks like this is the end of the thing because you've got less cases. Every single week, you've got a lower positivity rate. Gauteng's positivity rate in mid-July, uh, you know, week 31 of the year, whatever it was, yeah. they initially posted it when it when they first published the data. They were like, Gauteng's got like half as many new cases as it had the week before, and the positivity rate has dropped to 10%. And then you go and look at the next week's report to find that week. So now you, you're looking for the old week in the new reports rather than the newest week. Mm -hmm. And you see it's gone up by double. The actual number of cases reported Ooh. go up by double. The positivity rate went up from like 10% to 30%, more than double. So, so I don't trust that data until it's mm. like been around for a few weeks. <clears throat> anyway, well, and, and I, the point I is realized, that, I realized, yeah, yeah, finish, finish, finish. Also, the death numbers are still climbing. Uh, and on a smooth curve, the death numbers are still climbing, probably plateauing this week, uh, but maybe not. And uh, so it's just if the president wants to say here, if the the what the the representative of the command council, the PR guy for the <laughs> command council, who as a side job happens to be the president of the country, if if he wants to say the command council's reasoning is as soon as we have three weeks in a row of uh, repressed uh, rate of infection, we can uh, unban, uh, we can lower the level of risk from level three to level two. If that's their argument, it's a false argument. Yeah. They should be they should be lifting the bans because they're doing more harm than good anyways. And they should have lifted yes. them from the start. And everyone yeah. that wants to bow down before them and be like, I don't care what their reasoning is. I'm glad they lifted the ban is not thinking about the long-term consequences of every single time you let a political party, you let a command council get away with selling nonsense. You give and, them more uh, power think, over your own mind and over the public square and over truth. I think our, I think our uh, constitutional order has taken a serious knock during this whole mess. Um, and it's going to continue to take a knock until things are, are returned entirely to normal. And as long as elections go ahead uh, next year on schedule, which is there's been rumors floating about that, that, that they may, that their government may try to do this thing where they want to basically postpone them and then tie them up with the local and uh, national government elections, put, or yep. put them all on the same day. So they're having statements coming uh, up <clears throat> in to that effect. Good. Very not good. Yeah. But so here, here's what I think the next step is going to be. Riddle me this, Nicholas Lorimer. You're an intelligent man. Mm -hmm. Allegedly. The US, this is a scenario. This is called scenario postbox. The United States of America decides to go ahead 
with a 100% postal vote. So people are yeah. still allowed to vote in person if they want to, but every single address in America gets sent a ballot. And all you have to do is tick the box, put it back in the post box, and it'll go and it'll be counted. Okay. Yeah. And people fiercely resist this and they say that it makes all kinds of room for fraud. But the Democrats say anyone who resists this must be a racist who just wants to repress the vote. <laughs> yeah. And it turns out to be in scenario post box, that turns out to be a winning argument. Now you get 2021. The ANC is looking at municipal elections. It's looking at having the floor cleaned. Like I'm not saying it's going to lose everything, but I'm saying you could. It's you going could to have, lose metros. It's going to lose metros in a big way. Why? And that's like because 80 percent of the municipal budget. Ramagloria is over. COVID response is deeply frustrating. The economy is shellacked. Corruption charges are still flagrantly floating around. Three people have been thrown in jail, but it's not enough red meat to 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 sort of slake the thirst for proper reform. And Ramaphosa has made it very clear. There was that clip doing the rounds on my Facebook, at least this week, of Ramaphosa saying, you know, I had a choice, unify the party or or drive a wedge through the party by by really going after the corrupt. And I really want to unify the party. That's like my mission. So, ANC is really looking at a proper electoral slide, and they say, guys, here's your options. Either we postpone the election until 2024, fold the municipal election into the national election, or, bon mot theory, as the ANC often does, make the extreme demand that's completely unconstitutional, and then say, or we do a 100% uh, post-box voting system. <laughs> <laughs> and if you are against 100% post box voting then you want people to die from COVID because you want to yeah, force them to get into queues and you're a racist uh, but come on with that I mean would they even so <laughs> would they even this, be willing Nick? to try that considering, considering they say that uh, you know they, they make a big noise about basically people who don't have access to postal services I mean wouldn't wouldn't some people then make the opposite argument that uh, it'll be the poor and the disenfranchised, you know, that that will be screwed out of this? I mean, we know that the only reason they'd really want to do something like that would, would be to cheat. But I'm just just I'm just not sure even that would fly. Let's take it to the next step. So they say, okay, and we've thought about this because this concern will be raised at the very first command council yeah. meeting, and probably already has been. Maybe it has been. I don't know. Then the comeback is, well, you know what we have? We've got a big problem in this country. Not enough people have jobs. And you know what we have? We've got a little bit of money that we got from the IMF and we've got a lot ah, of money that we just invented. Ah, yes, no, of course. So That's here's what we're going to do. Massive infrastructure spending on expanding postal services <clears throat> and yep. everyone gets to vote. And we'll hire, we'll hire four quadrillion volunteers for the election uh, who definitely won't, won't be, you know, basically a form of patronage. And uh, this will allow us to conduct the election freely and fairly. No, no, I can see it. I can see it. I can see it. Um, and where will we be then? We will not be in a good place. <laughs> we will not be in a good place. And well, where are we now? Well, well I think, <laughs> whereas I think, I think the Americans actually possibly could pull off some, at least a partially mail-in vote. Even their mail system will probably melt down under the number of ballots. I mean, this is this is. Uh, someone did a test recently. I was, saw a news story where someone said that uh, the U.S. election 
they they tested they mailed a whole no, a whole number of ballots to another address to see how many of them arrived and something like four percent of them just didn't pitch and 21 percent of them took five days to arrive so if a hundred million people all tried to mail in at the same time or, or not even that doesn't even have to be that many let's say 30 million people all tried to mail yeah. in their ballots on the same day there's no way they're gonna manage so so but here's my worry is about that about the and our post office I, doesn't you know it delivers what 10 percent of letters <laughs> of course dude our post office is one is possibly the best run state-owned enterprise in the country <laughs> look i <laughs> that's a that's a low bar but even then i'm not entirely sure i think it might still be <laughs> i think it might still be something else i can't think of what but <laughs> yeah dude well i'll uh, if look our listeners if you can think of something that you think is a better run soe than the post office since mark bonds uh please feel free to drop us a comment uh <laughs> so i so so I think that yeah one one thing is capacity one thing is capacity issue the other thing in the US is that the US's electoral college system means that it really is often thousands of votes that swing elections a few thousand yeah. in this state a few thousand in that district that can swing a whole electoral college seat and that can swing the whole election and yeah. so if you want to if you want to if you want to rig the thing by getting 10,000 ballots that gets sent to addresses, you know, you go figure out who's not replying, who's not voting. Half Americans don't vote. You you go knock on their doors, get their ballots, vote for them, put it back in the box. You just do that ten thousand times, you could you could you could change the, the outcome. Yeah. So I don't I anyway I think I don't I think I think it can be quite complicated. Um Electoral, elect, electoral systems are often, especially when they're paper run, are surprisingly difficult to 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 mess with. So I'm perhaps a little bit more confident than you. I mean, <clears throat> there are a bunch of states that are mostly male in uh, voting already. I think Utah, for example, yeah. is one of them. Um, yeah. So in theory, it can be done and you can probably do it without fraud, but like not suddenly in an instant relying on the post office, never having done it before, not easing into it. That's that's going to be a mess. Um, and you can see a number of Correct. scenarios here. Uh, one of the good one of the good things, and I say good in by by meaning bad <laughs> things about this election is that no matter who wins, the other side is probably not going to accept it entirely. Yeah. Uh, uh, Trump's already basically said that the Democrats are trying to cheat via mail-in voting, and the Democrats are saying that Trump is trying to cheat by messing with the post office. So, you know, your 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 of your post-election yeah. narratives for how the other side actually cheated are yeah. perfectly in the in the tank now. They and well we set up. And, and right now, if you if you doubt either of those claims, then you are automatically evil to like yes. half of the punditry. <laughs> Yes. And if you dot both claims, then you then you're then everyone thinks you're evil. Yeah. So I guess that's me because um, I because yeah because I don't think I yeah uh, I well, I think you're well, right. Well, I think America has. Uh, let's talk about. Um, let's talk about the, the candidates. Kamala Harris. Yeah. Yeah. So what do we know about her? Well. So she's been picked as uh, Joe Biden's vice president, presidential candidate. Um, she's a 
she's an interesting character. She ran for president this time. Um, it feels like that was forever ago, but actually she was in this race. Uh, and she she came from a background as a state prosecutor in California, where she was pretty hardcore. I mean, uh, she locked up lots of people for marijuana violations. She she she's alleged to have basically tried to withhold evidence that would have gotten people off of um, death row, uh, at least until a court forced her to 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 release that stuff. Uh, but despite despite this kind of background, she decided to run as a sort of woker than thou candidate. <clears throat> she was kind of going for something a little bit like what Hillary Clinton did in the previous election. And she, you know, she put her pronouns in her in her Twitter bio, which is one of those kind of weird political cultural signaling things that that's very all the rage on Twitter these days. Um, she attacked Joe Biden for not supporting the mandatory busing of different race groups into other areas of the U.S. so that they could enforce racial mixing, which was a policy that the U.S. didn't want. I think it was the seventies or the eighties. Yeah, um, something like that. Which was very which was very unpopular, actually. And then she kind of went back on that after not quite accusing him of racism, but sort of accusing him of racism. Yeah. Um, she was a strange... Yeah, she, she ran a very strange campaign, and it went absolutely nowhere. Um, a lot of people assumed for, well, for basically me, racist me, reasons. Let me, let me put a pin in that. Okay. A lot of people just assumed that she would lock up the black vote in the US election because <clears throat> she's... Uh, half Jamaican and half Indian. Um, but, you know, as it turns out, people aren't nearly as racist as everyone thinks they are. And so she didn't. And uh, she flamed out rather embarrassingly before even going to a vote, I think. Yeah. So that's right, excepting for the fact that some polls did her ha have her in the lead after she went on the attack against Joe Biden. But it was only for about a week because then Tulsi Gabbard came out and... and chopped her up. And chopped her up and pointed out the contradictions in her own thing and pointed out that she was being a hypocrite because not only is she accused of not revealing evidence in discovery, which is her legal duty, which would have exonerated innocent people. She also <coughs> openly said she doesn't want to have body cameras on police. Uh, then when she was asked about uh, making it mandatory for district attorneys to investigate police officers who've shot someone dead, uh, you know, right now the coroner could just say, ah, I think it's fine, and there's no investigation. They wanted to make a law yeah. so that every time that happens, you have to investigate it. She she was accused of 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 getting in the way of that. And then uh, in the New York Times fact check, they were like, you know, she said on CNN to Jake Tapper, I didn't get in the way of that because I've got a policy of never commenting on proposed uh legislation this is when she was uh, attorney general of california because i've got to be yeah. the one who signs off on it so i don't i don't make my voice heard one way or another but then they pointed out that she had made her voice heard on other issues for example the body cameras yeah. and she had said uh at various speeches that she thinks that the most important thing is to leave district attorneys with the discretion to decide what cases they want to pursue or not pursue. And this legislation would take that discretion away and make it mandatory to investigate the case. So she directly spoke out against it. Her, her defense was then bullshit. Um, and, uh, and, and, and after being exposed as a hypocrite like that, she just totally, uh, she went nowhere. And, and, 
down. She melted down. And that's kind but, of where uh, she remains. So I think one of the things, my, my take on her is that I think that there's something admirable about trying to be a law and order candidate in California, but there's something yes. grotesque about then uh, uh, doing what she has definitely done and some of the things she's alleged to have done. Another thing she's alleged to have done is to have uh, kind of uh, delayed a process of paroling prisoners because she argued that they're very useful cheap labor <laughs> and that we yeah, need them need them because there's fires there's all <laughs> kinds of fires because of global warming and we need them to help put out the fires the forest fires like that's just <laughs> that's grotesque that is a grotesque yeah, ultra right no, kind of like so she's been ultra right she's been right wing in the stupid sense like a lot of right wing policies are really good like school vouchers and yeah, no, uh, being anti-deficit, and and she's been ultra left in in the stupid way. So she's she's like she. I think she comes. I think she wants to be pitched as the centrist candidate because, in a way, if you aggregate her mistakes, yes, then she's the but she's not actually um, in the center. She just straddles it. She's like got one foot in yeah, the ultra right, one foot in the ultra left. She's in the extremes of both to a certain degree, although. So I'll, I'll say that I think that she doesn't actually really have an ideological core. I think she just says, I think she's more so than even most politicians. She's she's a creature of pure ego in the sense that she just wants to, she'll say whatever she needs to say, what she thinks for the right environment. So in California, I think she supported, for example, the straw ban, the ban on plastic straws, which is one of those kind of culture war things that everyone gets very exercised about. And I doubt that if she was campaigning in Ohio, she would say that she supported such a thing. I think she's sort of completely mercenary in that sense. What, what disturbs yeah. me the most about her, it's actually not really any of this stuff. It's the fact that she shows an incredible indifference to respecting the Constitution and the role of Congress. Um, now, all American presidents ignore Congress to some degree, but she is one of the few who sort of laughs about it and openly talks about how she's going to just ignore Congress and use executive orders to crush dissent. And um, Elizabeth Warren also also sort of has said things like this. But they, the two of them between them uh, have said things like, uh, you know, we'll just ban if Congress doesn't act then we'll just ban all firearms that we don't like by executive order, which yeah. for the U.S. is a big deal because, of course, firearm ownership is in their constitution. So. That worries me about her. But I will say in her favor, she does mm. have a lot of enemies I don't like. <laughs> yeah. For example, the Bernie Sanders wing of the party absolutely loathes her because they see correctly that she is mercenary and not really dedicated to their cause, that her, her far leftness is a skin to wear to advance her own career. And as a result, she's sort of the worst kind of thing, which is a, a fake revolutionary. And they absolutely hate her. And the fact that she's been chosen as Biden's vice presidential nominee. So firstly, Biden was the most, in a sense, anti-Bernie of all of the candidates. Um, not in every way, but in a lot of ways, he was completely opposed to what the Bernie Sanders wing of the party represented. And to a degree, I guess, the Kamala, Saris, uh, Kamala, Kamala Harris, I think is how you're supposed to pronounce her name, yeah. um, wing of the party represents. So picking... Picking her is another rebuke to them that the primaries picking him already has done. So it's like reinforcing it, which does mean, though, that if Biden loses, the anti-Bernie forces in the Democratic Party are going to be in some serious trouble because people will say, look, you gave nothing to our 
uh, what, what do they call themselves nowadays, the progressive wing of the party. You gave nothing to the progressive wing of the party and you got you lost to Trump, even though he was so unpopular, even though you were so far ahead in the polls. Uh, you're never, ever winning a primary ever again. So for the for the Democratic Party's sake, Biden better win because otherwise they're going to make the the complete hurtling charge into extreme leftism like the Labour Party did in the UK with Corbyn. Um, and that will not be good for America or for the world because, of course, all of their nonsense flows downhill and ends up here. Yeah, I think that's a good analysis. Uh, I'll just recapitulate it, if I may, in this way. I like Bernie Sanders a lot. Um, I like him because he has been an independent governor. <laughs> you were part of, you were part of uh, was it Occupy Wall Street? So you know, I was he's, part of he's Occupy your Wall comrade Street. from back in the day. <laughs> I, what I like about him is that he's authentic. That he calls it as he sees it. Now I do think that he's wrong, but I think that the I think that the leader of the Progressive Party. Okay, I think the leader of the Progressive Party is is Elizabeth Warren, not bernie sanders anymore and uh it's her style of politics um that is very fake and very yes. much about signaling how much you care about the poor while imposing yeah. policies that have no effect upon yourself and actually end up hurting the poor that yeah. uh that i worry about going forward i i kind of the false piety uh, the false piety party yeah and i think that and i think she is and and there the problem is that the contrast isn't as sharp. So although there's a lot of hate for her, Kamala Harris's attitude to Black Lives Matter has been Black Lives Matter calls to defund the police. And she explains what she thinks that means. She endorses that. And she says defund the police means uh, actually spend more money on psychologists basically walking around communities, yeah. making people feel better. Because if they have if they feel better, then there'll be less crime. So I think she's already bending the knee. She's already bent the knee to the the the, the piety, false piety party, and um, so win or lose, I'm worried about that. Mm. No, that is going to be a problem. And of course, because she is such a sort of um, creature of uh, ambition, uh, I think that she will be running for president <laughs> from the if Biden wins. She'll be running for president from the first day that Biden's in office, uh, hoping yeah. that he's not going to make it for four years. Um, or, or more the good thing years. about her, the good thing about her is that she is because she is so ruthlessly ambitious and so energetic. If she, mm. if she thinks, there's two useful things about her. One is that she's such a weather vane. It's very interesting to look at what she's doing to try and understand the mind of half of America. The other useful thing about what she could do is if she feels the wind changing at her back uh -huh. from 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 a hard wind towards the left towards a wind that really is back to the center she might actually prove to be one of those politicians who does well because their interests and the national interest coincide for a period i think that's the yeah. sort of sliver of hope that i'm kind of holding on to oh. that, and she's energetic and i and i respect people with energy i respect people yeah. that I think there is something admirable to that. And if, you know, if she just calls it right, if she sees her best interest and America's best interest lining up, um, I think she could put a lot of momentum behind that. And because she's been fated by uh, CNN and the New York Times and whatever, she might do damage to some of the silly 
ultra lefties and kind of put Alexandra Ocasio Cortez in a place. Like I see, well, she has I, she has the gumption to do that. Yeah. She's such a fighter. I I can see I can actually see in a certain scenario um, that the Black Lives Matter wing of the party being crushed by the rest of the party, uh, who who do still form the majority of Dem voters, because yeah. they're no longer useful. Um, they tolerate them now because they don't want to isolate them before the election, but I can see them moving against them uh, before the midterms because they'd see them as a threat to to the party's control of Congress. Um, so that's the best case scenario, but who knows? It's equally possible, of course, that she could become the gateway by which the nonsense, the sort of really stupid lefty stuff gets into the party, into the main bloodstream, of the, the main line of the party in a way that is irreversible. Um, very much so, very much so. But, uh, yeah, so... Do so we, it's an interesting case. Do, yeah, no, it is. I, I, You know what, one of the things that really annoys me about her, and this is kind of just a sort of self-indulgent rant, but, but, but indulge me. She does a lot of these speeches where, like a lot of kind of, uh, as, is, as is popular these days in the modern Dem party, is to trash America as a place that's just utterly ruthless for people of color. That they... They have no chance that it crushes all their hopes and dreams and that they can never get ahead in it. And yet, her entire life is in a sense a rebuke to this. She uh, is, I think her parents were middle class, a middle class Jamaican and a middle class Indian woman. They come to America, they build a life for her, and she's born in California to these two immigrant parents. And she builds an incredibly successful career, um, you know, now that she's in the, one of the highest representative bodies of the U.S., this is this is just like Ilhan Omar who said a similar thing recently, where their own lives are yeah. the counter narrative to, to what they're trying to push here. Yeah. Um and it's if you it turn off the really sound under your skin. You, you turn off the sound and you see the squad and you're like, wow, America's really like got a lot of representatives not, of color. You turn on the sound, you're like, oh, there's no, no, no one of, no, yeah, no person of color can yeah, black people, black people get no, have no voice in the American political system, apparently. Um, I sent you actually a picture on WhatsApp the other day, and it was a screenshot of someone's Twitter. And their pinned tweet at the top of their profile was, I just want to thank, it was a, it was a young woman. I think she was a, she, she was a Muslim woman, maybe from Somalia or something. She was receiving her university degree and she had a picture of herself in this tweet and she said, I'm so grateful to my mother. She came here with nothing and she worked so hard for me and she built up my life and she made it possible that I could enjoy, uh, you know, all these wonderful things. Uh, and I wouldn't be nowhere without her today and her hard work. And then her most recent tweet is the next one down and it says, we must normalize being a communist. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> there's something there's something not connected yet. It's like I came to this country, it lifted me it it helped lift me up and gave me a life that uh, people in the old country would only dream of and would murder to get. And now I'm going to try and tear down all of it because it's rubbish. I mean ugh. No, it's very yeah. frustrating. Yeah. So we talked about it a little while ago, but worth updating our thoughts if we do uh, have them. Uh who do we think is gonna win? Uh, I, I think I think it's pretty fifty-fifty. I think that uh, Biden's big advantages have been that he hasn't had to speak, and so people haven't had to be confronted with the fact that the English language and he have divorced. Um, 
<laughs> I think that picking Kamala Harris will make up for that to an extent because yeah, she can go out and he, fight for him. She's very eloquent and she's and she's a strong fighter. I think there's going to be a lot of mud wrestling between her and Trump. I think that just my sort of side rant is there's something deeply mismatched about the way the debates are going to go. Because what you really want is Mike Pence and Joe Biden to debate each other. Because they're both like white bread, <laughs> kind of like pretty weird, like have strange attitudes to women. Like I think Mike Pence refers to his wife as mommy and Joe Biden refers to his wife as his sister. Like it would just be like, a great show to like <laughs> pop the popcorn to and enjoy like the fact that this is the best America's decided it has to offer. <laughs> and, then, and then what you really want is Kamala Harris and, and Donald Trump to debate each other because they're both eloquent. Like Donald Trump uses strange sy syntax, but he, 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 he knows he, he's, he's like a very, uh, uh, when to go in for a shot, uh, like what was his, yeah. what was his, um, uh, if if you were president, if I was president, He's you'd be in jail. Yes, yeah. Yes, Oops. And she and she's like that. I mean, she's she's she uses slightly uh, higher register of language and slightly longer yeah. sentences, but she's also extremely aggressive, as she showed against Joe Biden. So th so that's the debate that you really want, and I think that would be useful to to people. But that's not going to be the debate you're going to get. Instead, it's going to be Trump and Kamala Harris kind of running the media campaigns and their surrogates and their affiliates and their allies mm. kind of following their talking points. And Pence and Biden being the sort of quiet straight men uh, <laughs> that you just put in front of the flag was when a, you feel like... There was, there was a pretty good ad from Biden the other day, actually. It was him driving a car and he was basically... The point of the ad was um, we are going to uh, bring back manufacturing of car jobs to America and we're going to build electronic cars. So it's like, it's basically the Trump promise, except uh, we're going to build electric cars rather than gas guzzlers. All right. Yeah. Um, but it had him driving pretty fast in the car and stuff like that. And it was, I think, quite effective because there's been this sort of unofficial uh, tack of the Trump campaign and sometimes official. If you go by Trump's statements, although who knows if he's the if he's really speaking for his own campaign sometimes, <laughs> um, <laughs> that Joe Biden is basically basically mentally disabled and not capable of being the president uh, because he's yeah. an old crotchety man. Um, and this ad was pretty effective, I thought, and actually kind of pushing back against that because it didn't say anything about it. But you know, here he was doing a kind of adult macho thing now you know driving a car fast for about 100 meters is not exactly the height of physical fortitude and endurance <laughs> but it was a it, it was <laughs> it was a subtle but strong way of pushing back against it as for who's gonna win uh i mean so look i went and looked at the polls from 2016 and in some states they were pretty close they mostly had Hillary ahead, but they were, you know, within the margin of error and they, they would show that it was going to be a real close race. But then I went and looked at Wisconsin polls, the state of Wisconsin, and they were not even in the planet of being correct. Like all of the final polls there had Hillary up by like eight, nine points or something, and she lost the state by like 1% or something. Right. So that makes me a little bit hesitant to trust some of them. But I believe according to Nate Silver, who's a pretty 
reputable pollster who gave Trump a sort of 30% chance of winning last time, which is probably about right. Yeah. Um, they He said that, uh, that what they've done is they've adjusted now for education because apparently pollsters in choosing their sample sizes weren't drawing a big distinction between people with university degrees and people without university degrees. And when you actually look at that stat, you can see that that's a lot of Trump support comes from people without university degrees. It's like, yeah, I think amongst them, he's got about 64% support across the country, whereas every other kind of group. So white people without university degrees, he's about sort of 64%, but everyone else he's about, you know, 35% support amongst. So, you know, if, if they, they may have fixed the problems with the polls since then, um, I think based on that, I'm going to say that I reckon Biden's got a maybe 60 to 70% chance of winning at the moment. The one thing I think that could sink him is when the debates happen, does he he, he get up on stage and as, uh, as Jonah Goldberg says, suddenly start screaming, get these dang squirrels off of me? <laughs> as long as he doesn't do that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, he'll he win if he's normal. Yes. Yeah. I, um, I and, think and one of, one of the expectations one of the are very low with, from his own support. Yes. One of the problems with the Trump campaign has been that they've been pushing so hard on the like mentally disabled thing. He basically just needs to be able to form some sentences and it's going to look like he exceeded expectations. <laughs> yeah. No, I agree. I think, I, think the, I think the Trump guys have shot themselves in the foot there. I think they've been lured into a bit of a trap by Joe Biden being quiet. And I was sort of alluding to, I mean, I do think that he, I think he lacks the fortitude to be making stump speeches. I think if this was a normal year, then he would have uh, run out of gas and made, because yeah. he, when he waffles, he does eventually say lots of embarrassing things. But I think he can yes. be prepped for a few big speech, for a few big debates. Uh, someone, someone, um, I can't remember who it was, but someone said that he has a sort of five sentence problem, which is to say that, He's on message for the first five sentences to get his point across. And if he goes any longer than yeah. that, he starts to waffle off into like very strange territory and no one can tell what the hell he's talking about. Yeah. So so I think that uh, I, I I think that you, people often w wonder about the November, the October surprise. Uh, and I wouldn't put it past either of those camps to have been sitting on something that they think is pretty uh Inflammatory. But here's a question uh, for you: What what could possibly hurt Trump as an October surprise? Like it's not like you know someone says he slept with a prostitute while his pregnant wife was waiting. At, oh no, wait, we already know that. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no. So this is the thing. <laughs> Only Biden's vulnerable to a October surprise. <laughs> yeah. So so I'm so I'm not expecting a lot out of that. I'm I'm just sort of flagging it as 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 an obvious thing to keep one's eye open for i think the big october surprise thing is going to be the decision about how the vote gets conducted because yes. the democrats problem i believe is whipping the vote and this is the thing that uh, pollsters are usually the least accurate in predicting it's just and yeah. you know it's just very hard to predict what proportion this of the is another reason is get the exactly this is another reason why a lot of trump's uh, statistics were off because they just didn't know who was going to turn out for him. And a lot of rural whites without college degrees turned out in big numbers for him last time. Yeah. And a lot of people who they thought would turn out in big numbers didn't. And I think yeah. that uh, my, my, my general sense is that in the last four years, the Democrats have failed to make a, 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 a really sensible case 
for how they've got a better value add proposition for working class Americans. Mm. So they've got like a very like um, moral case, uh, and there's and and Trump really has done sort of grotesque and despicable things, uh, and so there's a lot of there's a lot of moralizing about him, infidelity mm. and and saying gross stuff, uh, but I don't think that they've made a great value add argument, and I think that a lot of people aren't that interested. A lot of I think a lot of working class Americans kind of take it for granted that all politicians are a bit skeezy and gross. And so aren't particularly excited by the message of like you need to go vote because otherwise there's going to be this creeper in the White House. I think they need that value add argument. And they because they haven't uh, succeeded in supplying it, uh, they really needed to take a different tack when the economy was booming, which it was. Mm. Uh, uh, now that the economy's kind of shanked. Depending on how the recovery looks between now and then, uh, I think that the door might be open to them to say, look, here's how we're going to do a recovery versus how you're going to do a recovery. But I think a lot of it is going to leave a lot of people feeling cold, feeling like, you know, I don't want to vote for Trump because I think he's disgusting, but I don't want to vote for the other guys because they're just they're just well, look, not getting me excited think, enough. And if they can change the, the if they can change the pattern of behavior sufficiently at scale with with reconfiguring how voting takes place if they can if 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 the democrats can boost voter turnout by five percent mm. in some key states then i think they've got it in the bag yeah i think that's i think that's probably right look i i think also that the main that COVID that the that COVID is probably going to actually be a lot of the the big conversation here because the narrative that seems to have caused Trump to go into a bit of a tailspin here. Not a, not a hectic tailspin, because if you look at the polls, um, <laughs> Trump Trump is in basically the same place he was like six months ago, and so is Biden. Like, it's the flattest yeah. I've ever seen polling. If you look at the, the lines of them, it's just he's sitting at around 40 to 44, and Biden sits at around 47 to 52, and they just stay there forever. Anyway. Um, yeah. The one thing, though, that that Biden consistently beats Trump in and that Trump is not doing well in is I think 62 percent of Americans think that COVID was badly handled by the U.S. government. I don't I'm not I don't actually know enough to know whether that's true or not. Um, and most Americans also believe that Joe Biden would have handled the crisis better than Trump. <laughs> I'm not so sure about that either. But it is the perception out there, and I think that is that might ultimately be the thing that that kind of just suppresses some of Trump supporters and maybe boosts Pep, some Dem supporters. Yeah. Good, good analysis. Okay, but so well, let's we, talk about what what the got Trump guys are hoping. Uh, so the Trump guys are going to be hoping that one thing that's going to boost them towards the end here is uh, the greatest deal of the century, uh, yes. which is peace of the Middle East. Sort He's of. in the Middle East. So, so step one, in a way, was moving the embassy to Jerusalem, the United States embassy yep. in Israel to Jerusalem. I think that was a really good one. Uh, yes, I want to give I a agree. shout out to my to my fiance, uh, who who almost never talks about politics. Well, uh, when it happened, I, we were listening to the radio together in the Western Cape, and we were listening to a Muslim radio station. And there was a lot of like back and forth. And some guys were like super keen on it. A lot of the host and uh, some of the callers were super anti it. And then one of the guys said this line. Uh, uh, you know, some people are just saying that uh, the Jerusalem 
is it's not just for the for the for the Jews. The Muslims can also put an embassy up there. The Palestinians can also put an embassy up there if they get their act together. Uh, that's still possible. But you can't share that city. It's like asking someone to share a wife. It's either for the one or for the other. Because that city is the most important thing to us and to them. And then we went through the tunnel and so we couldn't listen to the radio anymore. And, and, and Elena said, this is very confusing. Isn't the most important thing to most people their mothers? And can't two siblings <laughs> share a mother? Like we are both, we are both sons of Jerusalem. Like uh, that seems perfectly reasonable well. to me. And a nice you know, line, so, so and so I thought that was a good thing. And then, and then, and then, obviously, just the the the, the new step is uh, sort of deal co-signed by the United Arab Emirates, Israel, and the United States to say that there will be no more expansion into the West Bank, uh, but also that uh, the UAE is now going to recognize Jerusalem uh, as the capital and, and normalize relations with Israel. Which is which is something yeah. that has has been an ongoing sore in their relations since since the foundation of Israel. They have never been accepted yeah. by the Arab countries around them, uh, and when there has been acceptance, it's been very grudging. So uh, we were talking about this before the show, but Saudi Arabia still has a normalized relations with Israel, even though their president, uh, their their king rather, Mohammed bin Salman, or Prince Regent, I guess, uh, as yeah. is basically pressuring the Palestinians behind the scenes to make a deal with Israel, even though they are cooperating with the Israelis almost openly in intelligence and military affairs uh they still haven't officially actually actually recognized them uh, but this is a really good step because it means now that for one people can fly from jerusalem to the uae or from tel aviv to the uae uh which yeah. is a, which is a good thing and you don't have going to be trade you don't have to have two you don't have to have two passports i mean i know people who do that and yeah. then you have to you have to keep a separate set of passports yeah, and because if, if you if had an Israeli yeah. passport, you would not be able to get into these countries at all, basically. So, yeah. uh, also the, the 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 king of Oman, the I think he's a king of Bahrain. I don't actually know what form of government Bahrain has. Um, and the uh, president of Lebanon have all talked about maybe normalizing relations. Now, Lebanon's a bit more contentious because that country is very divided, but Bahrain and Oman will probably normalize relations with Israel in a few years. So it looks like Israel's isolation from its neighbors is kind of finally at an end. Um, and it doesn't geopolitics do wonderful things sometimes? <laughs> yeah, so I think, so I think that uh, especially if you consider sort of Israel having come from the place where people, uh, its neighboring countries kind of denied its existence and denied its right to exist. And mm. that was sort of at an official level and often had um, firebrands calling for the eradication of Israel. Uh, this, this is this is a very serious step in, a, in the right direction, in my opinion. So yeah, it is the it's normal. It was normal for mosques in the UAE, even just a few years ago, for when you went to Friday prayers, for people to denounce Israel and call for its destruction, and now they're normalizing so, with them. That's a that's a big change. So, so I think one of the interesting things about that big change is that, is that, the the Trump campaign and the Biden campaign have both claimed credit for it. So yes. Biden says <laughs> that he made it happen, uh, which is great because because of 
uh, because of him and Obama did the Iran deal and also he visited the UAE. Although what he leaves out is that last time he visited the UAE, he had to end up apologizing to their government because he said something really insulting. <laughs> okay. So it's a bit so, of a stretch. So, so, that's a, so that's one. Trump, Trump wants to make it all about him and how great he is and deal maker of the of you know best deal maker since uh, I don't know ever since ever really yeah, uh, but I think that but I think it's much more interesting than that and I think that this is an interesting case of a lot of self interests uh, lining up under under increasing symmetrical distributions of information like people have a better understanding of what the real balance of forces are in terms of hard power and so they realize their self-interest and the common interest line up uh that i think that's a little bit what's going on but i think nick's going to be better placed to sort of spell that out with the various players and and what and what they you know what are they getting out of this what what are the uae getting out of this are they, are they getting paid money under the table are they being bribed to do this why would they do this so I think the UAE, for, for one, they're, they're doing this because this allows them to more openly ally with Israel, um, which they need to do for geopolitical defense against Iran. So Iran is this expansionist power. It's Shiite as opposed to being a, a Sunni like these places. It's a republic with a kind of revolutionary uh, state ideology as opposed to these places, which are fairly kind of feudal monarchies in a lot of ways. Uh, and so yeah. Iran is a great threat but to very the existence wealthy. of the UAE. Yeah, and they're very wealthy, though, because they've got all this oil. But they don't have a lot of people. They don't have particularly good armies because the, uh, the UAE and Saudi Arabia make their armies rubbish on purpose so that they can't overthrow the monarchy. <laughs> um, <laughs> <laughs> which is one of those delightful Which is why they're like <laughs> losing to – Saudi Arabia is like losing to a Yemeni fraction. Yeah. To, 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 to a group of Ye Yemenis in the highlands with RPGs and – and uh, borrowed Iranian technology. Um, so they 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 shore themselves up against uh, Iran. They open up the possibility of more technological and economic trade and development between the two, which is always something you want from a country, especially considering Israel is one of the most advanced, wealthy countries in that region. So it makes sense that you you know you want to trade with them openly. Um, yeah. it, uh, the UAE is very keen on moving itself to a place where it's not just uh, hooked on oil. Uh, so Saudi Arabia, the uh, So they've just sent, you know, a probe to Mars um, recently. By the way, can I just, yeah. And can I also say, I, I, I watching Al Jazeera two, week, two or three weeks ago, there was this wonderful competition between U, UAE and Saudi Arabia going on all week, every day, with, with each side claiming that it had the best non-oil-based recovery from the virus. And on the one day it was the UAE, <laughs> and on the next day it was the Saudis. So they're like they are really trying to sell themselves as diversifying their economies, being more sophisticated, yes. service-based, good place to, you know, good lawyers, good uh, sort of holiday facilities. Obviously, Dubai kind of started with that idea, and yeah. uh, and Qatar and has done a good job of becoming a net. Yeah, and they've split up. They've split up sort of Africa and Eurasia in terms of where Emirates and yeah, where the airlines are going to go. So they are diversifying. Carry on. Although I will say that uh, if you, uh, this is my rule of thumb for the Middle East. If you want to see the the, the more evil side, it's almost always the side which Qatar is supporting. Uh, Qatar is a very ugly, ugly, uh, has very ugly foreign policy. Anyway, um, so what does Israel get out of this? Israel finally gets, uh, firstly gets trade, economic, technology partners in the region, which it's always sought. Uh, it gets a sort of psychological reprieve from, you know, Israelis since their foundation have wanted to be accepted amongst all nations. 
and it's been a big you know whenever israel has basically tried to make deals with the palestinians or tried to pursue the peace process or you know withdrawn from gaza whenever it's done anything like that it's basically been because israel desperately wants to be accepted in the world uh and this is i think a kind of a, a general psychological thing for a lot of its people and so uh its president or its prime minister netanyahu who is a political survivor of note he survived sc- a corruption scandal he survived bad elections i mean how many times did the israelis vote recently because they couldn't get a Jesus. government together yeah like every year it was like, like four times or something yeah uh, i think it was four yeah. times recently and that's pretty much because the main opposition party was effectively set up to be an anti-netanyahu party and netanyahu's party refused to make any deal that didn't leave him as the prime minister <laughs> so yeah so this so is great for him because he's finally yeah he's he's got a, yeah, he, a, a w to claim exactly and he's i think he thinks that if he manages to claim this w he's going to be able to uh you know get israelis behind him because he'll say look i brought us into the into the world i've made us a great nation now everyone accepts us and loves us we have proper allies um where so who cares if i'm corrupt exactly who cares if i'm corrupt who cares if i've been power for a million billion years <laughs> uh, i must say i i don't know much about israeli politics i don't know how true any of the allegations against him are but what i do know is that you should change leaders every now and again because otherwise they go a bit weird <laughs> and now is a very yeah. good example of that <laughs> yeah and the knesset just gets less and less important as the prime minister becomes more entrenched and of course the other big uh negotiator in this was the US who is friends with both the UAE and Israel and what they gain out of this while well, Trump is hoping to be able to claim that he has finally brought peace to the Middle East which has you know been desired by many many Americans for a very long time um it's it's kind of weird for Trump because you know he runs often as this sort of America first no one but us we don't care about the outside world but then he's also been kind of you know weirdly in some areas of his foreign policy it's been a very incoherent foreign policy uh, he's been very pro israel um in other cases he's been sort of uh given way to russia in other cases he's been tough on china in other cases he's made excuses for china so it's very weird uh exactly what he's trying to go for here i don't think there is a strategy but so so far as there is this does look good for him because he looks kind of statesmanlike and it looks like he's made some sort of big diplomatic breakthrough the great deal yeah, Pompeo promised that he Pompeo, was the, the Israel Palestine deal yeah yeah and Pompeo is looking good uh and i think he generally uh i think he comports himself well i think strategically he's done a lot of smarts in sort of working in a sort of pretty sometimes nebulous environment uh from all sides so so i don't know it it seems like it seems to me it just seems like one of those cases where a lot of self-interest a lot of braggadocio a lot of oh and there's one other thing that i want to add uh, which you raised in our pre-chat which is that part of what helped us work is that uh, the obama administration had somewhat cooled uh america's special alliance with israel and yeah. uh in, in particular had when when Netanyahu was coming to Congress to show them pictures of a bomb like literally just a picture of a bomb this is what a bomb looks like it's just a cartoon and this is how close Iran is to being nuclear capable uh please don't uh do this deal with them the Obama administration was very keen on doing that deal and that really freaked the Israelis out and that probably drove some of the sort of back channel diplomatic 
outreaches uh, into a higher gear, uh, which we are now seeing the reward of. So, so, so I think both Saudi Arabia, uh, UAE and Israel all realized that they couldn't rely on the Americans because the Americans were too schizophrenic about their relationship with Israel and how dangerous Iran was. And as and a result, they needed to make their own plans. Yeah, yeah. I mean, because the Iranian Iran Revolutionary Guard. <laughs> yeah, the Iranian Revolutionary Guard bombed the world's biggest oil field in Saudi Arabia. Uh, they've been playing very silly buggers in the Straits of Hormuz. They've been sort of detaining uh, ships. They've been shooting down drones. They've been pretty aggressive. Their leader was assassinated, but you know, sometimes you chop the head off a snake and it grows three more heads. The yeah, they, the the UAE and the Saudis they really don't want that, and so and so they started making friends in private. And now they're making friends in public. So there's a lot of factors, like some accidents, some yeah. very self-interested kind of silly things, uh, some uh, 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 national interests in 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 promoting trade and technology sharing and so on, travel. That all just seem to have come together in a small step in the right direction. I mean, I think it's yeah. I'd. It, It'd be great to see Oman and Bahrain join in. It'd be great to see Lebanon join in. Uh, it is uh, it is a victory, uh, I think, pretty much for peace in the region. Not entirely, obviously. It just doesn't really solve the Palestinian problem, but it does. It does suggest that the world is beginning to move on from a conflict that has, you know, occupied a lot of people's minds for seventy years. Yeah. Okay. So our only problem is we're running out of time. And we didn't get to talk about Zimbabwe, uh, which is yes. like pretty fascinating. I, I, hopefully, we can bring some of that to you next week. Uh, but we like to finish off with some recommendations. Uh, can I start this time? Yes, go ahead. So last night, I watched a movie by Werner Herzog called Fitzcarraldo. And it's a classic, and a lot of people will have seen it. Uh, I've seen many Werner Herzog movies. He's one of my favorite directors. But I've never, I've never seen that one. And... Uh, I think it's I think it's just about the most interesting film about colonialism that I've ever seen. It is heartbreaking. It's kind of mad and super entertaining and and very uh, there's something very real about it and very inspiring actually at the end of the day. So yeah, if you if you haven't seen it, it's a real classic. And uh, I I watched it and then I couldn't sleep for another five hours because my mind was just blown. <laughs> that sounds pretty good. Um, I'm not sure what to recommend. I guess I could recommend an old article, uh, which I think it still stands up. Um, it is an article by the American writer Kevin Williamson. In 2013, he wrote an article, an article called The White Ghetto. And basically it just talked about an interesting part of America, which is its poorest part. Uh, it yeah. is called the White Ghetto, and it is basically in Appalachia. I think it's in Kentucky somewhere, in the in the, in the east of Kentucky, and it's this kind of weird place where crime is pretty low, uh, but all anyone does is smoke weed, cook meth, and get drunk, and there's basically no economy except for the trading of food stamps for uh, uh, for for financial for aid, basically. Uh, so what people do is they get food stamps, which allow them to purchase food, and they go and they buy packs of uh, fizzy drinks, cold drinks, soda, soda pop. Yeah. And then they hand that in to other places, which they then get half of the, the what they bought it for with food stamps back in cash. 
and then that becomes their cash supply. So everyone gets sort of $800 worth of food stamps, and then they manage to exchange that for $400 worth of, uh, of uh, actual money, and then they use that to live their lives. Um, so it's it's quite depressing. It's just an interesting look at how, like, sort of, uh, like when a society is very sick, um, and it's well worth the read. It's a really good article, just on the on the way it's yeah. written and stuff, stuff like that. Brilliant. I remember. I think that's the first cool. one I read of his under your recommendation a few years ago, and it, it still sits with me. Yeah, no, it's, it is. It kind of stays with you, and it it was before Trump, but kind of explained some of the parts of the US that are the most pro-Trump. Um, yeah. it, it really sticks with you. Anyway, uh, is that all for today? I think we're done. I think that's it, man. Cool. So cheers, everyone. Uh, this will probably come out tomorrow on Monday. So all of you are no doubt going to be standing in alcohol and cigarette lines. Uh, good luck. Uh, mask up. Have fun. Stay healthy. And uh, we'll catch you all next time. Cheers, everyone. Keep thinking. Grr, grr. Grr, grr.